Lots of talk in our culture about confidence. We want those around us to be confident. If you're a parent, I'm sure you would say, yeah, I want my kids to exercise a measure of confidence. I'd like to be confident at work, confident at school. I wanna carry myself with confidence. And the Bible does have something to say about confidence and where we can find it. But before we go there, let's just think a little bit about our culture and let's meditate for a moment upon maybe some of the messages we've received in the area of confidence. So you'll often hear people say things like, so for example, parents wanting their children to increase in confidence. Well, I enrolled my kid in hockey or I enrolled my kid in baseball or badminton because I wanted them to be part of something bigger. I wanted them to be under the tutelage of a good coach. And so I put my kid in sports because I wanted to increase their confidence. Or people will say, you know, you need to stand up for yourself. That's your problem. You need to stand up more for yourself and not allow people to push you down, be confident. Or what you need to do if you really want to be confident is get fit. You know, get to the gym, get on the treadmill, run as hard as you can, get there three, four, five days a week, buy yourself a pair of yoga pants and guaranteed at the end of it, you're going to feel much better about yourselves. That's for the girls only, by the way. Um, or maybe you should go get some braces. You have crooked teeth. I have crooked teeth. My mom used to say, Aaron, you should get braces. I'm like, I don't want braces. I'm going to preach with a lisp for three years. Forget it. Well, you got to get some braces. A lot of people, I want to get some braces. It'll make me feel better about myself. Or some Botox, you know, get those lips puffed up red, get the shine on there. And that'll make you feel more confident about yourself or get some hair transplants. Um, I remember as a kid, we used to watch these commercials. Maybe I was a teenager. I don't remember exactly, but it was a, I think it was a commercial from the hair club for men. And the best one of all was the guy in the diving board. And he was up there with his full head of hair and he'd run his hands through it and he'd dive off the board and he'd come up and his hair was still on. And it was like, you know, take life by, I don't know, confidence, confidence, something, something, confidence. You know, if you, if you got a full head of hair, by the way, I don't have straight teeth. I've never had Botox. I'm not that great of an athlete. Um, my hair is falling out. I got it pretty bad, folks, going on. But <laughs> these are some of the things that people will encourage us to do or whatever makes you feel happy. You know, you need to do things that make you feel happy. Now, it is true that these things can provide a measure of confidence boosting. But in many respects, they're sort of like painting a wall when there's dirt and grease on it. You know, it looks good for a little while, but it doesn't really adhere. It doesn't stick. Eventually, it starts to flake off or the dirt and the grease begin to show through the paint. If our confidence is ultimately in things we can accomplish, inevitably and necessarily, they lead towards pride. And pride is not the same as biblical confidence. So what is Christian confidence tied to? Well, Christian confidence is tied to spiritual things. And in particular, confidence actually grows as we serve the king. Rather than getting, acquiring, fixing, or attaining things for ourselves in order to boost our confidence. Confidence grows as we serve the king. And this is the message that we're going to encounter in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. It is a theological message. 
It's very theological, so you're going to have to have your thinking caps on today. But there's several truths here that are really helpful for understanding what should charge our batteries, what should make us feel good, what should motivate us in ministry, what, what should be our priorities. These are the kind of things that come through in these 18 verses. So how does confidence grow? First of all, confidence grows through fruit-bearing ministry. You know, if you've been here before, if you're new, Paul was kind of defending himself against attack and allegation because people didn't like his message, his approach, and they tried to throw him under the bus and attack him for various things. So now he's talking a lot about himself and his accomplishments, but he's very sensitive to this line. You could say a line. He just want to cross a line. He's very sensitive to not miscommunicating to the church that his confidence was in his own accomplishments. So he makes this statement, verse one. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? I don't want to do that. I don't want you to think as I defend my ministry that I'm pointing you to myself. Look how great I am. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered to us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In this passage, Paul is going to repeatedly use negatives and positives to make his point. So don't get kind of lost in it all. He'll say, this isn't true. This is true. This is not what I'm talking about. This is what I am talking about. This is what I'm talking about. So he's going to go back and forth. Teachers often use this. They'll talk They'll teach negatively, don't do this, don't do that. And they'll teach positively, do this, do that. Or they'll give negative examples and positive examples. Paul is going to do that over and over again. So what's he talking about here? Well, you know that when you apply for a job, you often would go with some references, letters of recommendation, letters of commendation. And whoever's known you previously will say to who the person that's getting to know you now, this is what's great about you. Here are your accomplishments and you'll have your CV, your resume, and it'll have all your degrees or experience or whatever it might, uh, whatever you might want on there to impress the person. Well, you can understand that in the early church, they didn't have Google and churches were spread far apart. And we know from the New Testament, there were a lot of false teachers on the prowl. So apparently, if we read between the lines, it would appear as though at least some of the time, when a person was going from one church to another church, they might take a letter of recommendation to kind of prove that they were in good standing with the church they had come from. Now, the problem with this is that Paul's basic, Paul's basic argument is that's not really how ministry works. I mean, I, I could show you my CV, Paul's essentially implying. I could get some letters of recommendation to prove that I'm the real deal or that you know, you're doing well and I've planted bona fide churches. I think this is what Paul's alluding to. But then he kind of dismisses these things. And by the way, when I was growing up, we were in a, an assembly of churches where even if you went uh, from one church to another church on a Sunday when you were vacationing, you would bring a letter of recommendation to prove that you were in good standing. This isn't required, of course. I don't think there's anything in the text that suggests it's required. And it's not a bad thing to do, 
But Paul seems to be diminishing this approach to validating effectiveness in ministry. And instead, he's, he's basically says, put, put the paperwork aside. Put the paperwork aside. As I'm being attacked and as you're questioning my apostleship, look at the fruit I've borne. You yourselves are my letter of proof that I've been used of by God to see people come to Christ and mature in the faith. And we know that Paul was instrumental in planting multiple churches in different cities all through Asia Minor at the time. He didn't need paperwork to prove his medal. He was a disciple maker, as are we. We are disciple makers. That's why we have the Great Commission, which is sort of our standing orders to go into the world and make disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in many respects, that's all we really need to commend ourselves to others. You shouldn't have to go around and try to talk people into believing that you're a bona fide Christian or talk someone into believing that you're a student of the word of God or whatnot. If you're bearing fruit, that is one of many proofs that you are, that the hand of God is upon you and you're being used of by God. And you should find great joy and confidence and contentment in that. By the way, are you making disciples? If you meet a carpenter, you would assume that the carpenter is building houses or building furniture or fixing things. If you meet a baker, you would assume they bake bread, they bake donuts, they uh, bake chocolate chip cookies. You're not a baker if you don't bake, and you're not a carpenter if you don't build things. In the same way, you're not a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ unless you're making disciples, because that's part of your commission. It's not my job to do all the disciple making. We all have opportunities to make disciples with our children by mentoring new believers, by speaking truth into the lives of broken people. These are the things that really matter. And when disciples make disciples, they don't need really anything beyond that to prove that they are following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And it's because their confidence is in this notion that they are being used of by God. They're doing what God has called them to. They're obeying the Great Commission. They're taking seriously the Christian faith. And that just gives them a certain level of confidence. As a parent, I, of course, want my children to excel. I want them to excel in relationships. I want them to excel in service. I want them to excel in biblical insight. I want them to excel in ministry. I want them to excel in these things. And every parent would want that for their child or children. And in the same way, if you're a mature follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to want your spiritual children to mature and accelerate. This is part of your calling. So this is one of the proofs, if you will, that Paul presents and that we can present that gives us confidence that we are doing what God has called us to. We're obeying God as he has commanded us. Secondly, confidence grows as we open ourselves up to and observe the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Verse four says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, that we have straight teeth, that we look super awesome, that we're fit. No, this is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, 
not that we are sufficient in ourselves, which breeds pride, to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is the second time Paul contrasts something that is written with something that is not written. So he's contrasting written letters of recommendation with plain old spiritual fruit, which is far superior. And now he's contrasting the written law, which the old covenant people received, which they labored under and were unable to fulfill consistently with life in the spirit, life as a new covenant believer with the spirit of God working inside of you. He references here in the text in verse five, this idea of self-sufficiency. Now, self-sufficiency is this notion that if we have a problem, we can fix it. If we want to get something done, we just need to will it, will it to happen, invest ourselves in it. Uh, it's this notion of the, like the pioneering mindset, we can overcome anything, we can conquer anything, we can accomplish anything. We hear this all the time, and you've heard me rant rail against this repeatedly, this lie that parents tell their children. It's just so untrue, and you know it's untrue. Little Johnny, you can accomplish anything you want in life. Really? There's certain things I could never do. It's like, well, I'm going to be an Olympic athlete. <laughs> Will it all you want. It ain't going to happen. You're going to be a great mathematician. If you saw my math grades, eh, no. Everybody is constrained by their intellect, by their skills, by their finances, by their location, by their, whenever they were born in human history. Everybody is boxed in. But we have this strange lie that goes out that you know, we are like islands into ourselves. We can accomplish what we want. We can do what we want. And it's, it's just not true. And we leave people severely discouraged in the process. But if we attempt to be self-sufficient, it just breeds pride in our lives. Now here, the contrast is between self-sufficiency and God-sufficiency. So notice the contrast of statements. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves. Contrasted with our sufficiency is from God. Meaning, don't get too impressed with yourself and don't get too impressed with other people because ultimately our sufficiency is from God. Now, even in the church, we need to be reminded of this because as much as we say, oh, idolatry, that's sinful. Human beings tend to gravitate towards their heroes, their idols. And it happens in the church too. Think of how we speak of great Christians from before. You know, we, we think of men like Charles Wesley or Martin Luther or John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards or Spurgeon. And we only ever speak of them in the positive. It's all about that they were just incredible speakers. They were people of great insight. And we, we quote them. We never quote their verbal fumbles. We never quote parts of their sermons where they did a, a total nosedive and mixed their words all up. We just quote the, the flowery, the, the well-edited. Um, 
even in the present, people have their favorite podcast preachers, and there's nothing wrong with God calling people to positions of prominence. But sometimes we look to these people almost like they're messiahs or they're perfect, and then we're shocked when they, we find spiritual compromise in their lives. Christian concerts, you know, we see it, the Christian concerts, the kids are in the front row, and you know, so-and-so is putting on a show and you know, the, the fleck of, of uh, sweat flies under the audience and lands on their cheek and you, know, you don't want to wash your face for a month because I got so-and-so sweat on me. You know? Like this notion of putting people on pedestals or thinking too highly of ourselves can be a huge problem. And so Paul, what a, what a great Christian Paul was. What an incredible testimony. What an effective person. He's like, my sufficiency isn't in myself. It's in God. It's not in me. It's, it's in God. And this grew because he saw the spirit working in him. Likewise, we too are well equipped, sufficiently equipped. That's the word in the text. Sufficiently equipped as ministers of the new covenant, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of the ministry. I remember hearing something like this when I was very young. And it's, it's as true then as it is now. Little spirit, little power, some spirit, some power, much spirit, much power. When you surrender yourself increasingly to the work of the Holy Spirit, you learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. You're reading the scriptures and you're specifically asking the Holy Spirit, I want you to speak truth into my life. I I want to be convicted. I, I want to be encouraged. I want to be equipped. You're listening to the Holy Spirit speak truth into your life, empowering you when you feel afraid to share. You just pray for strength and the Holy Spirit gives you the strength to to speak the truth. Or when you're down in the dumps because life is just really not good right now, you allow the Holy Spirit to remind you of your eternal hope that this life is just a flash in the pan. It's just a moment of time. You open yourself up to the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives. Now, one of the reasons why a lot of people struggle with even talking about the Holy Spirit is because it's not like the concrete one-step, two-step, three-step business plan type approach that takes place in Western culture where we we know how to manage our way through things. We're very logical. There's a scientific method. It should take one-step, two-step, three-step. That's not what life in the Spirit's like. It's vulnerable. It's, it's, it's not always obvious. But when we surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit, he will come upon us and he will speak truth to us and he will equip us and he will encourage us in the word to give us strength that is not our own, that's not normal and natural to our personality or circumstances. To gift us in ways that are unexpected so we can do the work of the ministry in a way that our natural talents can't fulfill. I've shared this insight with, um, every year I do a discipleship group with young guys, like kind of 16 to 25-ish. And it's one of my highlights in, in ministry. And I've said to them, you know, um, if, you wanna, if you wanna pray a dangerous prayer, like a prayer that really deals with your carnality, and it is a prayer of surrender, and a prayer that works, When you are tempted to sin, pray this prayer. Lord, deliver me from temptation. 
I have never prayed that prayer and then subsequently succumbed to temptation. But in our carnalness, at times we might say, no, I, I, don't, I actually kind of want to sin right now. I want to say that. I want to go back there. I want to see that. But when you actually say, Lord, deliver me from temptation, you think God's response is going to be, nah, I want you to sin. I want you to, I want you to mess up. I want you to fall apart here. I, I'm like this cosmic killjoy. I make these promises, but I don't really fulfill them. I don't really want your life to be great. When we pray prayers like, Lord, deliver me from temptation, what are we doing? We're surrendering ourselves to the work of the Spirit in our lives. We already know the truth. We're not praying deliver me from temptation because we don't know what sin and error is. It's not a truth issue. It's a will issue. And it's true of almost all sin. And it's basically true of all sin in the mature believer's life. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of surrender. And we surrender when we say, Lord, deliver me from temptation. Like, I don't want to sin, but I know it of myself. I'm probably going to say that or do that or go there. So I need, or drink it or inject it or smoke it or whatever. I want you to deliver me from temptation. I want you to lead me. I want you to empower me for ministry. I want to be a living sacrifice. That's a dangerous prayer. Do you really want to sacrifice? Or do you just want to give a percentage? I want to be a living sacrifice. These are expressions of a life that is surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God. And we, we are sufficient ministers and sufficient servants of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the work he's done in us and through us that we could not do. We also have confidence through a new covenant. You know, we have a, you'll hear me use this language in the church a lot. We have a redemptive historical advantage. We have a redemptive historical advantage as new covenant believers. We are at the best possible place in history, this side of heaven that we could possibly be at. And here's why. Verse seven and following. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites, Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end. Let me just explain this sort of line by line because it can get a little convoluted. Moses, the prophet of God, went up Mount Sinai and received the Decalogue from God, the Ten Commandments. They were written on tablets of stone. When he came down the mountain, because he had encountered God in this close and personal way, his face was glowing to the point that he, he had to wear a veil over his face. And this is what Paul is referring to as a ministry of death. Let's find out why. Verse 8 says, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, here's a contrast again, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So think about this. God reveals himself to Moses. God gives him the Ten Commandments, which, which are the basis for the 612 others that would come out of that. God gives them these, these commandments. And the, the encounter of God was so spectacular that Moses' face actually glowed for a period of time so people couldn't look at him. But as we progress through the Old Testament, something becomes very, very clear. While those laws were protective, 
And while those laws were expressions of holy sacrifice to God and dedication to God, and while those laws were righteous and true, there's nothing innately bad about any of those laws. Ultimately, how did those laws function in the life of the believing community? They brought condemnation. Because of humanity's inability to consistently and habitually measure up to those laws, you always came away feeling inadequate. You're like, I, okay, I got the big 10 down, but now I got all these other laws. And I, I, I just, I ate something I shouldn't have eaten, or I didn't wash my hands properly, or I didn't cook my food right, or I forgot about the sacrificial system. I didn't you know, bring the right animal, or on and on and on. All these laws were like a weight that condemned the people to their own sinfulness and were supposed to remind them of their need for what? Grace. Grace. But in the time, as glorious as these laws were, they brought condemnation, i.e. death. This is an encounter with God we're talking about. And a pretty significant thing, we teach our kids the Ten Commandments, but actually they bring condemnation and death. So he's contrasting this with the work of the Spirit. Verse 9, I'll read that. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it, meaning the new covenant glory. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Why do we have a redemptive historical advantage? Because we are under a permanent covenant. A covenant that has reminded us of our desperate need for grace. Now don't kid yourself. God has always been gracious. He was gracious under the old covenant. He's gracious under the new covenant. He's always worked based upon grace and love and mercy. But the, the covenant itself was impossible to consistently keep. And history has proven that. Well, the principles and values of the new covenant are also impossible to keep unless you have what's called the Holy Spirit. And a, a completed canon of scripture, which we have. So there's a contrast here between the old and the new. Under the old, you can access God only through an intermediary. You had to go to the priest. How would you like to have that for a job? I'm going to be the high priest. So I get, I get to go into the Holy of Holies every year with a rope tied to my foot. In case I happen to have known or unknown sin in my life and God snuffs me out and people drag me out of the most holy place with a rope. Oh, that's a real confidence builder. Like if I had to come up here every week with the notion that I get a rope tied to my foot and I have to come up absolutely perfect and pure. And if I don't, someone's going to drag me off the stage. I would have been dragged off a long time ago. This is the kind of service that the old covenant offered to people. It, just, it, it was this weighty schoolmaster that reminded you that you'll never get 100%. You'll never fully pass. You need something beyond. So we have here God. God speaks to Moses. Moses comes down the mountain with the Decalogue in his hands. 
Moses' face is shining. It's this wonderful thing, but now it's just kind of dismissed. It's pushed aside as being inadequate and insufficient. The law condemned in the sense that it proved our inadequacy to be consistently righteous, which introduced us to the need for someone who is consistently and always righteous to be our substitute, to secure us by his grace, to sustain us by his grace, to equip us by his grace, to resource us by his grace. And we have that. And so the spirit-led life under the new covenant where we have access to God directly, comes not to condemn. Did Jesus not say that? I didn't come to condemn. You're already condemned. You came to bring life. This is, the, this is the, the great inadequacy of Roman Catholic theology. A lot of great things about the Roman church in terms of their moral stances and many things they line up with us on. But the great inadequacy of the Ro- one of the greatest inadequacies of the Roman church is this notion that you still need an intermediary to access God. It's not biblical that you have to go to a priest or sit in a confessional or have someone that's a a, a professional pray on your behalf. That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible teaches. We have direct access to God. I, I can confess my own sins, thank you very much. Now, the Bible also advocates confessing your sins one to another. I think there's a transparency there and a brokenness and a vulnerability and an accountability that follows that is healthy. But the New Testament, the new covenant rather, is superior because we have access to God. And the new, the new covenant does not come to condemn, but it comes to give life. We can experience the fuller glory of God. And we've seen God's fuller glory in, in Christ, in the work of the cross. We have a completed canon of scripture to guide us and direct us. So this is the spirit-filled life we have, which is glorious and enables us to see more of the glory of God. Fourth, confidence through open access to God. We've already got into this a little bit, but let me just flesh this out a little bit more. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. That's a confidence word. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face and the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, when I see uh, veils here, I probably could take a little bit of time to come up with some mask jokes, I suppose, but I will refrain from the temptation. Uh, But just picture him trying to communicate to the people with some sort of a veil on and them not really fully seeing his face in the same way when we read the old covenant scriptures apart from Christ, there is a certain vagueness or veiledness about it. It's hard to fully kind of see the big picture. Look what it says in verse 14. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Christ is the eureka moment of history. Christ is the eureka moment of history. He's the full story. It's like, okay, now I I see it. I get it. Even in the crucifixion event, the veil is torn in the temple from top to bottom. It symbolizes access. It doesn't mean everyone didn't run in there. Okay, now we get to hang out in the Holy of Holies. That's not the point. It symbolizes open access and the sufficient, completed, once for all work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his superior work on the cross. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Paul was in all likelihood thinking of his Jewish friends and neighbors and antagonists that still maintained allegiance to the law. Do you remember these guys? Why are you eating corn on the Sabbath? Why are you healing people on the Sabbath? Why are you not doing this? Just as an adherence to the law with no awareness that they themselves were woefully inadequate. By the way, that's the problem with legalism. Legalism is when you live by leg- legislation, man-made legislation, and you think, okay, I, if I can just really will myself into righteous conduct, God is going to be like, man, you're awesome. Well, the Christian faith is not like that. The Christian faith is a call to obedience, and it's a call to surrender, and we need to follow the rules. But we always live with this tension knowing that we can't. We always mess up. It's like, the, you know, we, we, we hear these stories of people, oh, I can't believe this guy uh, sinned or said this or said that. If this is the person that led me to Christ. Well, what are you talking about? Everybody here sins. You sinned this week. We could spend some time talking about it, but we, we, we'd be here till next week. We all sin, but we live by grace. We keep short accounts with God. We confess our sins daily to the Lord. We seek, seek to be obedient. We don't take advantage of grace. We want to be obedient, but we also hold to grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And by the way, we could add, continues to sanctify a wretch like me. We live by grace. Both the old covenant and Moses' role prevented old covenant believers from access to the fuller story of the gospel. It was like it was veiled. Like imagine reading your Bible right now with some sort of netting over it. You're going to see some, but miss a lot. That veil was taken away through Christ. In Hebrews, which speaks a lot about this theme, 4.16, the Bible says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a wonderful thing. It's, it's wonderful because it, it's joyful, but also is really humbling that we actually need that. We need to constantly draw near, not just once at our salvation moment, but consistently draw near to the throne of grace uh, to find grace and help in our time of need. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 18, Paul further instructs, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit. And listen to this church. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from sin. Freedom from bondage. Freedom from going back and sinning over and over again. So the opposite then must also be true, right? Where the spirit of the Lord isn't, there is bondage. But where the freedom of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is speaking to the church. So this means, this is uh, super helpful for us to understand as we combat sin in our lives. When we are sinning, especially when we're sinning and we're happy with it, or we're not dealing with it, it's because the spirit is not there. Like, well, how could that be? The spirit is omnipresent. True. But God manifests himself through prayer, through worship, 
through proclamation, when we call upon the name of the Lord to do wonderful things. So while the Spirit is in proximity to you, the Spirit may not be operative in your life, working in your life, if you're living in disobedience against God. But again, as I said earlier, this is why we pray those dangerous prayers like, Lord, deliver me from temptation. I'm asking God to enter into the moment and free me from my propensity towards sin. And I, by the way, I can tell you as a person that's been walking with the Lord for longer than half of you have been alive. I would say very young, 41 years ago. I continue to sin sometimes shamefully. And it's not because I lack knowledge. It's not because I lack willpower. It's because I'm not yet fully sanctified. Now, it's dangerous when you sin and don't mind. That's not a problem for me. I sin and very much mind. But I need to call upon the Spirit to enlarge His presence in my life in an increasing way through surrender. Now, this is humbling, but again, it goes going back to the first part of this passage, it reminds me that my sufficiency is not in myself, but it's in the Lord working in me. Again, I hope you see it clearly. Confidence through straight teeth, great hair, Botox, athletic prowess, the degrees you earned, that's you. Confidence because the Spirit's operative in your life, you surrender to him, you're a subject of his grace. That's a sufficiency beyond you, but it builds a confidence that endures. The text goes on to say, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I think this is a reference to the progressive nature of sanctification. Degree by degree, step by step, we're being transformed more and more into the glory of God. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As Christians, we see, and then we are to reflect back to the world, the person of Jesus. So we see him, we're impacted by him, his image is re-impressed upon us, and then we reflect him back into the world. We're called the body of Christ, aren't we? We're called the, the people of God. We are an embassy on earth for Christ. We represent him. And if the world doesn't see Christ, it's because the world hasn't met us yet or we're not doing a very good job or something in that, in that realm. But the Holy Spirit refrees us from bondage to sin. When we were kids, we, um, I think we bought two hamsters and then somehow we had like eight hamsters and then 16 hamsters and they just kept breeding. So we just kept buying cages and we had little hamster cages all over the house. And one hamster, his name was Fonzie, uh, got out of his cage one time and disappeared somewhere in the heating ducts. We never saw him again. But if you watch hamsters, I mean, they're cute little things, but they're kind of useless. They just get on little wheels and they run. Just run, 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 run. I was sharing this at the first service and my little nephew who has a hamster took offense to this. But they just run on the wheel, the hamster wheel, just round and around and around. And it's kind of cute, but at the same time, if you think about it objectively, it's ridiculous. Just running on this wheel. Hey, why am I here? I'm just running on a wheel. Running on my wheel. This is my life. This is my existence. What do you do? I run on a wheel. You're cute, but you're kind of useless. And bondage to sin is like that. 
we just run on the wheel. We, we try, but we never get anywhere. We just round around we go. And after 70 years or so, we're gone. What kind of life is that? In Genesis 2, we're, we're told that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 3, the image and likeness of God is marred. In Christ, it can be restored. And we now reflect him. We reflect the glory of Christ. We're being restored. We have been restored. We are being restored. We will be fully restored in heaven. And our job is to let the world see Christ through us. But it's not me. It's not like, hey, do you see Jesus in me? Because I'm a super righteous guy. Oh, I know my Bible well. Oh, I, I'm in church every week. Do you see it? Are you impressed yet? And then you hang out with me. And he's not all that impressive after all. It's not about reflecting your righteousness as so many churches inadvertently teach their people. Just be like super righteous. It's about reflecting the righteousness of Christ, which, which is reflected as you allow the, the spirit to work operatively in your life. And as you understand what it means to be a new covenant believer and all the blessings and benefits of that. This is why church, you don't need to be proud to be confident. Pride is a sin because the source of pride's affirmation is the self. But the source of confidence's affirmation is Christ and the work of the spirit and the new covenant promises we have. So if you really want to be confident, serve the king and do it for his glory. Proclaim his message and enjoy the access that you have to him as you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, even this week. Thank you.